Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles with me this evening and find your way to the Gospel of Luke, the 11th chapter, Luke chapter 11. As you turn to Luke chapter 11 this evening, we're going to be focusing in on the theme, learning to pray like Jesus, learning to pray uh, like Jesus. I should ask you perhaps as we begin this evening, if you were given a scale and asked to give on the scale where you would rate your prayer life. From one to ten, where would you put your prayer life on that scale? Learning to pray like Jesus. Do you sometimes feel like your prayers reach the ceiling but don't penetrate the courts of heaven? I know I do. And as we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11 this evening, we can understand, I think, a little bit of the question that the disciples were asking the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We read in verse 1, it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples to pray. Now, in answer to their request, the Lord provided an expression of prayer that we know well. When you pray, he says in verse 2, you should say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the expressions of prayer that we know well. We've come to call this the Lord's Prayer, but probably better, the Disciples' Prayer. It was a prayer that the Lord used to instruct His disciples as how they should approach the throne of grace. But when you think about it, the Lord Jesus did not just provide us an expression of prayer as a model, but He also provided us with an example of prayer. Along with the disciples' prayer, which is found here and elsewhere in Scriptures, We also have an example of prayer found in the life of our Savior himself. In fact, the gospel record gives to us many examples of our Lord in prayer. How often we need to be reminded of the need to be a people of prayer. We call this our midweek service, and typically you'll see in the bulletin, the adult Bible study is here while other ministries are going on around the campus. Many of us in this room can remember when Wednesday night was simply called the prayer meeting night. We need to be reminded of the essential nature of prayer. Ravenhill, in his book on prayer, says, The church has many organizations, but few agonizers. Many who pay, few who pray. Many wrestlers, wrestlers rather, but few who are wrestlers. This evening, what I'd like to do is open up for you a journey. We won't complete it tonight. If you look at all the points that are on this outline, you might be thinking, we're going to be here a while. We won't get through all these this evening, but I'd like to begin a journey tonight, seeing how the Lord exemplified a powerful life of prayer. There are 15 prayers of our Savior that are recorded in the Gospels. We should not be surprised by that. We're reminded by Peter In 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, that he left us an example that we would follow in his steps. Matthew contains three of the Lord's prayers. 
Mark and John each contain four of the Lord's prayers. And the Gospel of Luke, which presents the portrait of the perfect man, shows that perfect man in prayer some 11 times. Now, when you watch for duplicates, for sometimes one gospel will share the same prayer that's shared in another, I think you'd come to the conclusion with me that there are 15 of the Lord's prayers to be discovered in the pages of Scripture, in the gospels. And I'd like to highlight some of those prayers this evening in order to challenge my heart and yours as to challenge us with regard to when and how and what we should be praying for as we look at the Lord's prayers along the way. Come with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke, the third chapter. Luke chapter 3. We find in Luke chapter 3 that the Lord is praying as He enters into public ministry. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened And the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. We read by it, but in the 21st verse, we read and ponder that while the Lord was being baptized, he was also praying. Now there are many questions that arise when it comes to the baptism of John as opposed to the baptism of the church in the New Testament. John was baptizing, and you recall that according to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus came from Galilee unto Jordan to be baptized of him, Jesus said he would want to be baptized, and John forbid him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and you come to me. And Jesus said to John, allow it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And so he allowed him Jesus, when he was baptized, the Bible says, came up straightway out of the water and the heavens were open, Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist and Jesus, what relationship did they have more than their obedience to the call of the Father? What was their human relationship when it comes to their family relationship? How were they related? They were cousins, right? So Elizabeth and Mary being related, John the Baptist and Jesus being cousins, And so it's very likely that they knew one another uh, from childhood. Why would John say to Jesus, I have need to be baptized of you and you come to me? John had baptized a lot of people. What was it that caused John the Baptist to speak this way to Jesus in particular? After all, up to this point, Jesus had never done a miracle. This beginning of miracles did Jesus do in Cana of Galilee, John chapter 3, the time of his baptism. He's just entering into his public ministry. Jesus has not yet done any miracles. The Sermon on the Mount has not yet been preached. And yet John the Baptist says of Jesus, I have need to be baptized of you and you come to me. Why is John speaking that way? What led him to respond to Jesus' request in that way? The suffering? Oh, his upbringing. Yes. Yeah. When you think back, he leapt in his mother's womb when Jesus and Mary came into the house. So his upbringing, no doubt his mother, Elizabeth, has told him about Jesus. 
the Magnificat was likely sung in Elizabeth's presence. And so we have John the Baptist from his youth. And what was John's great ministerial desire? What was the theme of his life and ministry? He must increase and I must decrease. So John immediately responds, I have need to be baptized of you and you come to me. And then Jesus says something peculiar in Matthew chapter 3. Thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. What's he mean by that? It must have meant something to John because John immediately baptizes Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Leading to something here. What we want to try to figure out is what's the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of the church? Are they the same? So to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized. John had been preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's not a message that you normally hear us preaching here on Sunday morning. You might hear a message that enters into some consideration of repentance. But seldom do we ever put these things together. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who was the audience to whom John was preaching? The Jews. And so he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How does he know that? Jesus is the king. And he's preaching, repent, turn from your sins. And baptism for John the Baptist was a portrait of the washing away of sins. Friends, baptism was a very customary thing within Judaism. When you go over to Israel, and I would invite everyone to go, when you go over to Israel, when you approach the temple, as you approach the great temple court, you go up a series of steps, but before you even get to the steps, there are all these mitzvahs, there are all these baptismal fonts. And I'm not talking like a baptismal font like you'd see if you went into an Orthodox church with holy water out front. I'm talking something where there are dozens of them out front of the temple. Uh, there may be as many as a hundred of them out front where there's water in a pool and you walk down steps into the pool, you completely immerse and you come up the other side before you go up the steps and into the temple courts. Everyone knew baptism. When you see where the Essenes lived, where they were so exacting and being able to put together the scrolls and the scriptures were being copied multiple times a day in recognition for the sacredness of their task in preserving God's word, they were going down into the water and coming up out of the water. Baptismal pools are everywhere. And when I was with Craig Hartman last time I was there, I said, pardon my ignorance, but this seems like such an important part of Judaism in the first century. Uh, what about today? And Craig said, oh, oh. Brother Chuck, you said, when you move into the area that I grew up in, in, in Brooklyn, around the Jewish people in New York City, the real estate agent will actually tell you how far you are from the sacred baths. Everybody knows how many blocks they are from where they can go and have a ceremonial bathing before they go into the synagogue. I said, really? Yes. And it was immersion. Now, John the Baptist was immersing. And so when you come to the question of, well, why do other churches do other things? Why sprinkling and why pouring? Great question. Because it's clear, John the Baptist, you got an answer to that question? Oh, no, no questions now, Brother Jim. Go ahead. So Jim is asking, was the baptism of John Christian baptism? 
Jesus hasn't died and hasn't risen from the dead. And so my answer is going to be no. John's baptism was immersion, but it wasn't Christian baptism. So now the greater question, what does Jesus mean? And we're way off track here, but we're having fun, right? So what does Jesus mean when he says, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus wasn't being baptized because he was washing away his sin, nor was he being baptized because he had to have his sin forgiven in preparation for the kingdom. He was without sin. Yes. He's our example. That's an excellent answer, Kim. And as our example, he completely identifies with the people he redeems. While he's rejected by them, he was completely God and completely man. And he completely identifies with the needs of those that he will redeem. His baptism wasn't Christian baptism. But baptism today, Romans chapter 6, we're buried with him by baptism, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we should walk in newness of life. Baptism today has a new picture. So this gets confusing, and sometimes it's confusing even in the minds of Christians. Baptism today is not a washing away of our sins. Was baptism in the time of Christ for the Jews? Well, it was a symbol of their willingness to repent. Baptism today is a picture and a portrait of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. John the Baptist baptized by immersion. We baptize by immersion. John the Baptist baptized preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so that the Jews could identify the fact that they're sinners who need to be prepared for the one who is the coming Messiah. But our baptism today is not picturing that. Our baptism today is picturing that Jesus died in my place. I tell people when I prepare them for baptism, when you get baptized, you get to be a one-person play. You get to play the part of Jesus. And what a precious picture that is. That when you stand in the baptismal waters, it's not that your sins would be washed away. Water cannot wash away sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse of our, of our sins. But the water represents the burial of the Savior and the resurrection of the Savior. Two different gospel messages, two different baptisms. The message of John, repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so there was good news, the kingdom was at hand. But there's a better news today, the gospel and the baptism that we preach and practice are different. Anybody still with me right now? Okay. What we just described is called a dispensational difference. Pastor Phelps, you bring that up a lot. Well, you have to bring up dispensationalism because you have no other way to accurately be able to interpret God's Word. There are differences from the Old Testament to the New. This is a dispensational difference. I told you I was off the topic but let's get back onto it. The topic is prayer. The topic is prayer. S.D. Gordon, in his book on prayer, said if there are two persons praying, there are three. If three meet to pray, there are four. There's always one more than you can see. What a blessed reality is ours. And what we see in Luke chapter 3 is Jesus is there with John the Baptist. During this time that he's being baptized and entering into public ministry, he is praying. Why? Because prayer is power, said Gordon. The time of prayer is the time of power. The place of prayer is the place of power. Prayer is 
tightening the connections with the divine dynamo so that the power may flow freely without loss or interruption. So the minister should never enter ministry without prayer. Some of you are familiar with the story of John Wesley and Charles Wesley and their holy club. Their holy club at Oxford would cause them together to pray for hours, to fast, to wake up early, to sacrifice many things. They were not yet believers. They were not yet regenerated. But they wanted to know the power of prayer. And as they, even before they were saved, gave themselves to prayer, they did afterwards, so much so that people called them Methodists. They had methods and disciplines that they practiced. And often you'll discover that even with the Great Awakening and on from the Great Awakening with Whitfields and Wesleys into other awakenings, where there is power for revival, there is always prayer. Some of you have studied some of the history of this. This is a statue that not too long ago was moved. It sat in New York City for over 100 years in the same location. Many people who went by that statue probably didn't recognize that that was a statue in honor of Jeremiah Lanfear. Jeremiah Lanfear was responsible for a prayer revival that broke out in 1857 and carried its way through the Civil War. Many people think that our country would have never survived the Civil War without the Great Prayer Revival. It was called the Great Revival. In fact, when Spurgeon spoke of the Great Revival in 1858 in his church in London, England, he made this statement. He said, I'm told that a revival has swept across the states within America, so much so that people can go today from door to door in entire villages of New England and not find a single unregenerate soul. Lanfear in October of 1857 simply invited people to come to a prayer meeting. It would be only one hour from noon to one. The impetus for the prayer meeting was a tremendous financial crash that uh, the Americans were reeling from. He was in New York City, an opportune place where people were involved in investment and business. And so he invited people to come and be involved in a prayer meeting. He waited 40 minutes before the first person showed up. He'd passed out many flyers. October 17th, we're going to begin this. It'll be from noon to one. After 40 minutes, one person came and they prayed together. Within a month, over 10,000 people were praying. In fact, that revival of prayer began to spread across the country. And within six months, 50,000 people a month were being saved in various locations across America, from Atlanta, Georgia, to Chicago, and on through into the West. Within one year, those who have studied this revival believe that over one million people had been saved because one man invited others to come and pray. And here's something interesting about the prayer revival, and it ought to challenge the men in this room this evening. There was never a woman who came to the prayer revival. It was all men. It was businessmen who came. He designed it so that if you had five minutes, you could come and pray for five minutes. If you had the whole hour, come and enjoy the whole hour. That God did a work of revival, Jeremiah Lanfear. The Welsh revival, some of you have studied this, Evan Roberts, born in 1878. In 1904, Evan Roberts gave himself completely to prayer, and those who knew him said that he would pray from 1 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock in the morning every day, desiring that God would bring a revival to Wales. He dropped out of seminary because when God started doing something, he wanted to be part of it. By the time of his death, he was a rather obscure fellow without much of a following at all. 
But during a one-year period of time, simply based on the power of prayer, those who study the Welch Revival tell us that over 100,000 people came to Christ as Savior in a one-year period of time. And you know what Evan Roberts had prayed for? 100,000 people to come to Christ as Savior. He should have prayed for a million, right? But those who trace the Welch Revivals will say that the Welch Revivals came because of a prayer meeting. In a real way, I think I can say this evening, I'm here tonight because of a prayer meeting. I'm here pastoring at least this evening. My Aunt Gladys was born in 1911. She lived in a rough coal mining junction called Bevere, Kentucky. She was part of a prayer meeting that was precipitating the, the ministry of Monroe Parker who got off a train in Bevere, Kentucky and before the meeting was over, over 500 people had come to Christ as Savior and hundreds were baptized and the churches exploded. I'm thankful that she was at the prayer meeting because it was the prayer meeting that brought the power. And when we look around and we wonder why aren't we seeing more of God's work, if you know the story of D.L. Moody, when D.L. Moody went to London, England, nothing happened and then he was invited to a particular place to preach, and something remarkable happened. And he asked the pastor, what do you think caused so many people to come to Christ as Savior during this service? And the pastor said, I think I can show you. And he took D.L. Moody to a woman who in his church prevailed in prayer, not knowing. The pastor took Moody to this woman's house. She was an invalid. The pastor simply knew that she prayed much, and so he thought she might be the reason that God's blessings were so apparent. And when Moody came into the room, the woman pulled out a clipping from a newspaper, and she said, are you Mr. Moody? And he said, yes. And this woman said, I found this clipping in the newspaper of some of your ministry in America. I have been praying that you would come here for several years. And God brought revival through Moody in London that touched hundreds and thousands of people. In fact, they say probably a million people came to Christ as Savior through the Moody revivals at that time. Now, we not, we're not speaking evangelistically about the numbers, I hope, but we are speaking this way. Every one of those have this, this in common. Ministry beginnings happen best and really only happen when God's people pray. And if you're looking for a model of that, it's no coincidence that when the Savior was going into the water and coming out of the water, the Bible says His ministry began with prayer. So should yours. Don't ever go into a Sunday school class to teach. Don't ever go into the nursery to minister. You know, it's a blessing Sunday by Sunday. Most of you aren't here for this, but I get the privilege of seeing this. Before our choir rehearses on Sunday evenings, they always pray. Before someone rehearses to sing a special number, they always pray before the sound check, they call it. I think the best part of it is the prayer check to make sure that before someone ministers in song, uh, they're prayed up. And by the way, that doesn't just include those who are on the platform. What a blessing to prepare your heart for ministry week by week when we come into the Lord's house by spending time in prayer. I did not expect to spend that amount of time on that thought. But it's a wonderful thought. We don't simply learn to pray by zeroing in on the Lord's prayer. We learn to pray also by the Lord's example. He set for us an example that we would follow in His steps. Come with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. How important is this as we go to Mark chapter 1 and discover that when he encountered busy activity, the Lord was constantly seen in prayer. Mark chapter 1, 
Mark uses his favorite little word in verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue, and he taught. They were astonished. And you recall that while in the synagogue, he cast out the unclean spirit, requiring that that one who was demon-possessed hold his peace in verse 25 and verse 28. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region round about Galilee. Verse 29, you can see the quickness of the thoughts as Mark develops them here. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, verse 29, they entered into Simon and Andrew, into the house of Simon, and Andrew and James and John, and Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever. And then in verse 34, and he healed many that were sick of divers diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. In the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. Verse 39 tells us he preached in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, casting out demons. What was the example that he was setting in the midst of this frenetic activity? Verse 33, he departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. This region of Galilee was, of course, a region he knew well. He was busy all over the place. In fact, many people think, and I, I agree with the many people, that by the time Jesus' ministry in Galilee was done, there were no longer any people there who were ill any longer. Well, you've got a choice to make. Either go see Jesus or stay sick. And Galilee's not all that big an area. And he was ministering from sunup to sundown, healing and casting out demons. And after having served on a busy Sabbath, when others would rest, the Lord was found praying. Did you know that Martin Luther was heard to say, I have so much to do today, I need to spend at least the first three hours in prayer. Sometimes we hear those kind of examples and we think that's too, that's too unreal. And after all, the prayer life can be expanded because we pray always with all prayer and supplication, everywhere, all the time, always communing. I remember years ago I was praying with a fellow who started a ministry that's ongoing today that's reached out to every state, I'm sure many, many foreign countries. It was called Neighborhood Bible Time, still is. Some of you are familiar with Neighborhood Bible Time. Charles Holmesher was the founder of Neighborhood Bible Time. An eccentric fellow, I think he would agree to that description. A real good personal friend of mine, he was part of the church that I was assistant pastor in out in Colorado. The first time I prayed with Brother Holmesher, we were on our knees together, and as we were praying, he got stumped on a name or an incident or a situation. And while he was talking to the Lord, he turned to me and he said, he called, always called me Charlie. Charlie, what's the name of that guy again? And it really startled me. It's like, oh, you're talking to me now. Oh, well, it's this guy. He was so natural about his praying. It was just an all the time conversational thing. And while we were on our knees, it wasn't any different. He was like that all the time. And I remark on that because I've seen through his life an eccentric fellow. Not the most gifted man I'd ever met, and I think he'd say that's accurate. How do you explain the ministry that he started and how many thousands and thousands of people through that ministry have come to Christ as Savior? I think the only way you explain it is he didn't forget what the Lord taught and what the Lord modeled. That as busy as a day can be, and they're busy, we need to spend time in prayer. Constant criticism of our contemporary life is this, we're so busy. And friend, if we're so busy, 
that we don't have any time to talk to the Lord. We're too busy. The Lord modeled it, and He's divine, and yet He's the God-man. Here's another place where you see the Lord praying that I think is interesting. Back to Luke, sorry, going back and forth, but back to Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to end with this one this evening, and we'll look at some more of these in the days ahead, and I trust the Spirit of God will challenge each of us to be convicted about our own personal life of prayer. When he returned to a place of familiarity, Luke, let's go right to chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. It says in verse 15, and so much more, there went abroad there a fame abroad about him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed of him of their infirmities. He withdrew himself into the wilderness, and he prayed. Well, where was he when he was praying in this way? Well, back over there in chapter 4, I see that same incident of Simon's house where the fever departed from Simon's mother-in-law. I see in verse 41 that devils came out of many. I see that he says in verse 43, he must preach the kingdom of God in other cities also, for therefore he is sent. In chapter 5 and verse 1, at the end of the verse, he's by the lake Gennesaret, which is simply another name for the Sea of Galilee. He's talking to his disciples about launching out in the deep. And the Bible tells us he is in his home area, and he's busy in this home area. And while he's busy in this home area, not everyone is exactly happy about his ministry. In fact, if you go back a page further, back to Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 24, he said to them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. He said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the day of Elias, when the heaven was shut up, three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. Now remember, he's in his home area. As he says this to them, how did they respond? Verse 29, they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. Rejected in his homeland. And yet we already discovered over in chapter 5, what was he doing? He was finding places to pray. Do you have a place to pray when you are at home? This passage specifically tells us that Jesus was rejected at home. You shouldn't be surprised when you find yourself among family members and friends' intentions about your desire to serve the Lord. How do you respond? Not with argument. No, instead you respond by showing the Spirit of the Lord in prayer. The Christian needs to be warned. The place that seems the warmest may be the place that's most wicked. The disciple's family is often to be feared. Matthew chapter 10, I came to set at odds or at variance the father against the son and the mother against the daughter. I'm going to end there this evening, kind of an abrupt ending. But I trust as we look at some of these incidents in the prayer life of the Savior, the Spirit of God will say to us, hey, how about you? When you're ministering, when you're busy, when you're at home, all the time building a conscientious awareness of the opportunity that we have to come before the throne of grace. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. 
If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindie.org or check us out on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.